Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tight Fitting Jeans and on today's episode we have an amazing guest. Dr. Janie F. Shelton is a senior epidemiologist at 23andMe. Just to give you a small brief of 23andMe, it is a DNA testing company uh, and on today's episode we talk about a paper she and her team uh, co-authored. Uh, it talks about the various genetic and non-genetic risk factors of COVID-19 severity one interesting uh, point that we also discussed uh, is about how certain ethnicities are at a higher risk compared to the rest. Uh, this is an amazing episode and if you like genetics just like me and if you've been following all COVID-19 research for the past two years, then this is an episode that you might not want to miss. Um. Thank you, Janie, for agreeing to do this. Honestly, I know I took a lot of your time, but I am finally excited to sit down with you to do this episode. Of course. Uh, before we get started, it would be amazing if you could tell us a little about yourself and what you do. Sure. Yes. My name is Janie Shelton. I am an epidemiologist at 23andMe. We are a direct-to-consumer genetics testing company, and we have over 12 million genotyped customers, 80% of whom participate in research with us. And a couple of years ago, when COVID first started to show up in the United States, we launched a, a very large scale research effort to understand the genetics of COVID susceptibility and severity. And so I was um, lucky to work on that study across, you know, at several other amazing scientists at our company. And, um, and yeah, here we are today to talk about that particular study. My, my role at the company now is to help our therapeutics team align all the data that they need to make decisions on new medicine development. So we do that in partnership with our, um, our research cohort who um, inform a lot of our genetic discoveries. So it's a little bit about my role. Uh, great. A few weeks back, I came across your paper titled Trans Ancestry Analysis Reveals Genetic and Non-Genetic Association with COVID-19 Susceptibility and Severity. Uh, and as someone who is doing genetics or who at least has a background in genetics, I found this super intriguing, mainly because I did know that infectious diseases have a genetic basis to it. But then uh, when I came to know even COVID-19 could COVID-19 severity could have a genetic basis to it. I was pretty intrigued. So could you tell us a little about how the study was conducted? Absolutely. Um Starting off, you know, back in, in the early part of the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 in the United States, um, it was already apparent from where the virus had already taken hold that there was a huge amount of variability in the susceptibility and severity to the infection. So we were seeing some data coming out of the Wuhan outbreak and the scientists reporting there on um, risk factors associated with various lifestyle factors, age, male sex. Um, you know, everyone was curious about smoking at that point. And then we saw, you know, a very young ophthalmologist in, in Wuhan who, um, who himself died of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So we were observing this huge variation in who fell extremely ill from SARS-CoV-2 and also acknowledging that some people were asymptomatic or very, um, very, you know, lightly symptomatic. So 
with all of that said, we immediately um, hypothesized that genetics might play a role. And, and we knew that from you know, other studies looking at uh, severity and susceptibility in genetics and how, how that has an influence on, um, on acquiring infections and susceptibility and severity of infection outcomes. So with, um, with SARS-CoV-2, when, when we started to conceptualize the study, um, back in March of when the outbreak was first happening, it was a very rare infection in the United States at that point. And so when, when we were trying to understand how many people we might be able to detect, um, we had to take a really broad brush and ask in a survey, you know, have you had any flu-like symptoms? And this influenza-like illness approach is something that the CDC has used for a long time to track influenza. Um, and then we used as another sort of layer of, of case identification, if you've had a positive test, if you've been diagnosed, given, you know, given all the complexity to who had access to testing at that point. So um, the way that we went about targeting uh, the United States customer cohort was utilizing all of the models that were put out from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. And they were developing time-based models of when hospital bed capacity would be, would be overwhelmed in various states. And so we took a state level sort of geolocation approach and about two weeks after a major surge in infections and hospitalizations, we started to send surveys and ask people if they had had any of these experiences. Um, what ended up happening is we had over, you know, at this point, we've got over a million and a half respondents to our survey, and we've identified, you know, thousands of cases of, of COVID-19. Um, in the paper that we published at that point, we had discovered about a thousand people who had been hospitalized out of a cohort of about 15,000 who reported the infection. So our initial analysis was to look at the genetic differences between, between people who acquired the infection versus did not, and then people um, who were hospitalized versus not hospitalized in among the set of people who reported COVID-19. And those are the two populations we looked at for, for genetic analyses. Mm -hmm. um, and also you did mention about a survey that you had to take in order to collect data. So what kind of data had to be collected by your team to start working on this hypothesis? So our survey started out by asking about, um, about any influenza-like illness symptoms. Then we asked about positive tests or diagnoses. We asked also about symptoms. So we collected a bunch of information about specific symptoms where, you know, it was quite clear that people who lost their sense of um, smell or taste were much more likely to have COVID versus another upper respiratory infection. Uh, we also asked about comorbidities. So, so that's another element that has been described as having a strong influence on the severity of the infection. So we have a lot of that information already in our database and where it was, where it was missing, we asked people to tell us about various um, cardiometabolic diseases and underlying respiratory conditions that might be relevant um, for how, how severe their infection, their course of infection is. 
Um, so our survey was fairly comprehensive. For people that did not report COVID-19, we followed up with them every month for an additional three months to see if they acquired the infection in the follow-up period. So that was another way that we were trying to identify cases um, because it was actually quite rare at that time. And also in your paper, you did mention that your team was able to associate two loci with the severity and susceptibility of COVID-19. Could you tell us a, a little about the significance of these two regions and also uh, about how your team was able to choose these two loci as ideal candidates? Sure. So, so when we ran our genome-wide association study tests, we, we immediately saw a, a location that showed high variability in terms of susceptibility to the, to the infection itself. And that was the ABO locus, which governs the blood group that you have. So whether or not you're O group, A group, B or AB, um, those are the major blood groups in the population. And what we found was that people with type O blood seem to be slightly less likely to be infected with SARS-CoV-2 than people with AB or, or, um, or combined AB. And so what, why that's interesting is because blood group is, is relevant to a host of other cardiovascular outcomes, including blood clotting and various other types of, um, you know, health outcomes. So, so blood group is actually a really important determinant of, of health. Um, and I don't know how much of that is, is known or understood, but it is, it is a really interesting thing to have show up. And, and we have since found that, um, some of the like antibodies that are made against various red blood cells have sort of a dose response relationship to the antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So there was a lot of back and forth in the literature at the time. We saw this peak quite prominently show up in our, in our, um, it's called a Manhattan plot of the genome wide associations. And what that's doing is on your X axis, it's showing you all of the different chromosomes all the way up to the 23rd pair of chromosomes. Um, and on the y-axis, it's showing you the statistical significance of that association um, with your outcome. And so, so we saw at the at the ABO locus a very strong and statistically significant peak when we were looking at infection versus not infected. And then when we looked at hospitalization versus not hospitalized for COVID-19, we saw a different locus in the genome and that was on chromosome three. And what's interesting about that particular um, locus is there's about four or five different genes that are plausibly related to, to um, severity. And the reason for that is because you're seeing various genes at that locus, which are related to um, things like ciliary function in the lungs, also related to immune signaling through cytokine receptors and all of that. So there's been, since we published this paper, and then since an international meta-analysis has also you know, observed the same thing, there's been a bunch of work to try to angle in on what precise gene is in play there. Um, since you mentioned about the ABO blood group uh, gene um, as something that could possibly be associated with COVID-19 susceptibility. I remember coming across a very significant SNP in your paper, which is RS8176719, if I'm not wrong. And um, also, I remember this is a kind of a quite well-known SNP because a homozygous, this homozygous deletion, if it's present, it means that someone could potentially have blood group O. So does this mean that someone with blood group O 
uh, would be comparatively less susceptible to COVID-19 than uh, the other blood group? That's right. Yes, exactly right. Um, okay. Uh, is there a reason for this or... There are, there are a bunch of um, other papers that have looked into the mechanism by which how, you know, how blood group could influence COVID susceptibility. And much of it has to do with sort of interactions with the ACE2 receptor, which is how um, the virus gains entry into the cells in the human um, nasopharyngeal pathway. And so that is, you know, that there's a bunch of literature on that, which is describing, describing different mechanistic hypotheses of precisely how that works and how it influences, um, you know, the, the virus's ability to take hold. With that said, people with blood group O still get SARS-CoV-2. So it's not something I think we should, um, we should, you know, make any like behavioral changes around. I wouldn't just comparatively less. That's right. It's just, it's just an association that we see that has some biological relevance and, um, and you know, points out some some various um, components that are relevant to to the virus actually binding and gaining entry into the cells. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's also something where, you know, we're not we're not going to then extrapolate and say that people with different blood groups should behave differently. So it's it's really not that relevant to an individual person. It's more for us, you know, people who are trying to really understand the viral mechanism and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, why do you think a trans ancestral analysis was required? Because in your study, uh, you guys have done that. And also does COVID-19 severity and susceptibility differ based on the ethnicity? And if so, why? Um, what, what we can really do with the 23andMe cohort is we can look at genetic association studies across different race ethnic groups. And so one thing that I don't know if your listeners are aware of is that a lot of genetic studies just have to be done within um, specific ancestry groups. And that is for uh, a really specific reason around introducing something called population stratification bias. So if you were to combine various um, race ethnic populations into a singular GWAS and then not control for it, you might see associations that are simply due to that population having different genetics related to their ancestry as opposed to specifically related to the outcome of interest. So when you look at different genome-wide association studies, you're you're often going to see that it's just done in Europeans um, or it's just done in people of, you know, East Asian descent or South Asian descent. So So what we're able to do at 23andMe, because we have a diverse population, is we can run all of the genetic studies in each um, in each like large ancestral population, and then we can run something called a meta-analysis where we look across those different populations and say, here's the average effect of this gene on this on this locus for this outcome, Um, and we can we can evaluate whether or not there's relevant differences across those populations. For both of these particular um, associations, we didn't see major differences across um, race ethnic group, but it is really important to note that because we have you know, a huge population of Europeans, we have a lot of statistical power to observe 
the association in Europeans. And we have relatively so many fewer people of African descent in our database that our confidence interval um, you know, goes beyond the null and we're not able to extrapolate statistically significant associations specifically within certain smaller populations. And that's definitely an area where as you know, genetic research develops, we're, we're hoping to have a lot more participation from non-European groups so that we can help to, to navigate this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in your paper, it was written that African-Americans reported hospitalization twice as high as expected. Um, I remember reading another paper which suggested that vitamin D deficiency can negatively affect COVID-19 outcomes. Uh, that paper also suggested that fatality rates coinc- coincided with vitamin D deficiency. Uh, we do know that uh, melanin can limit the amount of sunlight uh, our body absorbs and also can also limit uh, vitamin D synthesis. So uh, since uh, African-American population have and also Indians have comparatively higher melanin, do you think this was the reason as to why uh, African-Americans pro- probably reported hospitalization uh, twice as high as expected? I, you know, I don't have any data to evaluate that question on. I don't have vitamin D levels. And I, I you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it's absolutely something that we should understand better. I do know that vitamin D deficiency, as you say, is, is really common and it's very common in, in people with darker um, pigmentation of their skin. And so this is, this is an area where I think we have um, pretty, you know, pretty resounding support for, for vitamin D having an, an important role in immunity. And I, I, I think that that's definitely something we need to all be a little more aware of in our personal risk, um, and, and health practices, but we, we did not have any, um, you know, vitamin D levels in our data to, to answer that question. What I can tell you is that we ran a multivariate, um, you know, logistic regression analysis, trying to control for factors we did have information on. So we could control for a host of things that could influence access to care, such as um, the median um, income level in your zip code. We controlled for education and age and body mass index and um, comorbid conditions and all of these things. And we could not explain the association, right? So the association with elevated risk in African-Americans persisted despite everything we tried to adjust for. So we did not have you know, we did not have the information to explain the elevated risk in the data that we collected. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you mentioned that those with O blood group could comparatively uh, be less susceptible to COVID than other blood groups, uh, something that I noticed was uh, I do know that O blood group is very common among Asians, but I didn't see anything about an Asian cohort taken in your study. Is there a reason for this or? Yeah, it's just the sample size is, is far too small for mm-hmm. us to um, rigorously derive any any conclusions. So we just had too few participants, unfortunately. Um, what we can, what we did, um, what we did look at was I'm scrolling down to our um, to our trans ethnic analysis. So so we did we looked across African American, Latino, and European populations for our GWAS studies and then meta-analyzed across those groups, but we didn't have sufficient numbers of um, 
of an Asian cohort to actually analyze there, um, unfortunately. So that is definitely one of the shortcomings of this of this um, study is that we don't have, you know, we don't have comprehensive diversity in the database. Um, so yes, um, that is that is something that we also so so one thing that you can observe in in genetics is the allele frequency of certain um, of certain polymorphisms, right? So so when you look at variation in the in the human genome, um, the frequency of the of that variation can be different across populations. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about type O blood group. It's actually more common in Latino and African American populations than it is in Europeans. So you would expect to see, you know, a slightly lower rate of infection in those groups compared to Europeans. Um, and with that said, we still saw much more severe outcomes in those populations. Um, so there's also a population. So um, if, if you look at the paper, you're going to see a um, a table two, which is estimating the risk of hospitalization. And we looked at Latino versus European, other non-European versus European and African-American versus European. And the other non-European population is going to encompass um, many of the Asian subpopulations that we have in our database. You can see there that there's still an elevated risk um, in, in the other non-European population, which I know is a heterog heterogeneous population to, to describe, but I just wanted to point out that in our, in our risk model, looking at hospitalization, we did see elevated risk for basically all non-European populations. Um, so I think, you know, I think that this is something that deserves a lot more attention and study. And, you know, we have a, a very large and robust literature on health disparities and all the reasons for that. So that's definitely something that I think deserves a lot more, um, a lot more um, attention paid to it, but largely on, you know, in, in, in ways that actually help people get better care, right? Yeah. So I guess it's a combination of factors that affect the severity of COVID, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically a question mark for us. What precise thing to sort of try to put our put our thumb on to improve things? But um, but yeah, in, in our paper, we were not able to explain the elevated risk with things like comorbidities or income differences or education differences, which we know are correlated with healthcare access. So um, so when people were saying early on in, you know, in observing the differences in risk, like, oh, it, it could be because, you know, X, Y, and Z populations have higher levels of type two diabetes or what have you. We were able to demonstrate that even adjusting for those things, we're still observing this persistent elevated risk. So um, it's sort of dismissing those hypotheses as explanatory. Okay. Um, why do you think understanding the genetic basis of COVID-19 would be helpful? The genetics can lead us to different therapeutics. So the, the main reason why looking at um, host factors in severity of outcomes is to try to understand pathways that could be therapeutics. Um, and, and some of those pathways were identified to have pre-existing therapeutics. And so um, this is an area where getting the genetic data out in front of 
people who can translate that information and say, you know, this pathway is targeted by a pre-existing drug. Let's try that drug to see if it helps people um, improve their health and get out of the hospital faster. Um, so, so that's where we were early in the outbreak in the United States is trying to understand if any of the genetics could help point us to new therapeutics and medicines that could help people as we were seeing, you know, hospitals fill up. That was, that was the main motivation. Um, and, and I think where the real value lies in the genetic, genetic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you spoke about non, uh, non-genetic factors, which influence COVID-19 severity, maybe could you quickly uh, say what possible non-genetic factors influence COVID-19 severity? Sure. We, we definitely saw strong associations with body weight. Um, so, you know, obesity was something that, that showed, you know, very, very high associations with hospitalization. So, um, over twofold risk of hospitalization adjusting for all over uh, all other factors in our model for people who are, um, 30, 30 BMI and above compared to people with normal BMI. So we also went on to produce some models that you can find on our website, uh, which show how lifestyle can influence hospitalization risk. And so with COVID-19, this was a really interesting case where we could say like, it is really critical to prioritize your personal health. We saw a dose response relationship with exercise. And that's something that you can see on our, um, our risk model that we have on our website at 23andMe that's publicly available. And um, we we produced that model before the vaccines were available. But when we observed these things in the data, we wanted to get them into the hands of the public because, you know, as we were all sitting at home and trying to isolate during the pandemic, I know that there was a lot of differences in, in people's personal health routines you know, levels of depression and anxiety skyrocketed. People stopped walking to the train to go to work and stopped like moving around, um, around their neighborhoods as much as they were before. And so what we, what we found was that it's just absolutely critical to still prioritize your personal health to protect against severe outcomes. And that's regardless of what your BMI is starting out. So regardless of your BMI, getting out and exercising is going to have a protective effect against severe outcomes um, for COVID-19. And that's something that, you know, we're extrapolating from cross-sectional data. We, we didn't do a clinical trial and, and assign people to different exercise groups, but, but seeing a dose response relationship between exercise levels and, um, and severe outcomes adjusting for all the other factors that we could was quite compelling in, in helping us you know, stand behind these statements of how critical it is to maintain your, your personal health habits. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, one last question. I know I've been taking a lot of your time, but one last question. Uh, this was based on, I guess it was in one of your papers, not this paper, but it meant, it, uh, it spoke about how variations in the HLA complex are related uh, to the degree to which one feels ill after vaccination. Could you maybe briefly mention about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We, we were interested also in, in why some people got really sort of knocked down from, from the vaccines and other people were um, relatively, you know, fine the next day. And so we, we saw, we saw a strong association at something called the HLA locus, which is, um, which is a part of the genome that governs 
um, various proteins on the major histocompatibility complex and, and places where different antigens are taken up into the cell and presented to other cells to basically amplify your immune response. So this is something where we observed a pretty strong association with how um, reactive your immune system was to the vaccine. And um, our paper, our, our white paper on that was published about the same time as, um, as another paper. And so we've got, you know, a confirmation cohort showing this association. And so unfortunately we don't have um, a way to tell people what their HLA, uh, you know, what their HLA haplotypes are in our product, but that's something that, you know, I've always been really keen to, to help people understand. And I hope that's something we can do moving forward because it is, it is a strong determinant of various other allergic and um, autoimmune outcomes. Yeah. Maybe in the future, there'll be a model for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Shelton. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this and also I learned a lot about this. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Harita. So nice to meet you. Best of luck in your studies.